Disclaimer. The discussions and personal opinions of the guests do not replace professional advice. It's recommended that you seek your own independent professional mental health or legal support to meet your individual needs. Where they now become defined for what they've done as opposed to who they are, to see beyond their bad, to see them for who they truly are, to understand their why, what drove them to do that. Was it childhood trauma? Was it drug and alcohol abuse? Was it another trauma that they're going through in their life? To to see beyond the bad that the world defines them as, the world defines them as their charge. Join us in this captivating episode as we delve into Celine's extraordinary life and career as a criminal defence lawyer. From her role as a criminal defence lawyer to making waves on TikTok, Celine takes us behind the scenes of the courtroom drama and sheds light on her experiences representing some of Australia's most dangerous and notorious criminals. We unravel the intricacies of defending a criminal in court and discuss the pivotal role that psychologists play in the legal system. Learn about how criminal defence lawyers and psychologists work together to build a comprehensive profile of the accused. This involves considering psychological nuances that may provide context to the alleged actions, presenting a more holistic picture for legal consideration. In essence, the justice system recognises a holistic understanding of an accused person involves legal perspectives and insights into the complex realm of human psychology. Welcome to Life in the Cyclone, Celine. It is a privilege to have you on, so thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You have a very interesting job as a criminal defence lawyer and obviously lawyers and psychologists overlap to some degree uh, in our work, but can you tell me and give everyone in our audience a bit of a background on what you do, your work, why you do it, and just give us some insights on it? Yeah, certainly. Well, you're definitely right. We definitely um, do a lot of work with psychs in my particular area of law. So as you alluded to, I am a lawyer, but I work exclusively in criminal defence. So uh, for people that don't know, if you're not working for the OPP or the DPP, so the Director of Public Prosecutions, they're the people that are always prosecuting. So they're the people that represent the police. They're the ones that are bringing the charges. If you're not working for them or the police, then you are always working in defence. And that's what I do. Um, so I have been in criminal defense law, not necessarily as a lawyer, but in criminal defense since 2013 when I started my law degree. Um, and I've really been in it ever since. So, um, I took a break in between. I didn't know if law was for me. So I took, went on a brief hiatus. Um, and then I had a period where I thought, Oh, do I love criminal law because I actually love it? Or is it because it's the only area of law I've been exposed to? Mm -hmm. So then after my little hiatus, I took a job in a generalist firm and I very quickly realized I love criminal law because I love criminal law. Um, and I got <laughs> back into it and I've been in it, um, ever since. So, Look, there's a lot of romanticization of my job um, in the media and TV shows and, you know, uh, movies and, you know, there's lots right. of, mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, this high, you know, drama and high excitement and, um, 
kind of a thing and there are moments of that 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 are that are true but there's also a lot of admin and a lot of paperwork and a lot of that that you don't see um in terms of me you guys might have seen me on the old tiktok i um i kind of vlog about days in my life and exactly what that looks like in terms of me and my workload the kind of people i work with the kind of cases that i deal with um it's really from the lowest end of the spectrum of criminal offences to the top end. So I'm talking like, you know, minor driving offences, like um, going five kilometres over the speed to mm-hmm. the most serious murders, rapes, um, sexual assaults, incests, kind of the most terrible things that you could possibly imagine. And um, that's what I deal with. I've never really? refused. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, I want to ask you something about that. It's so fascinating because I think obviously it's so normal for you in terms of criminal offences. Let's say you do the, the minor offences to the major and more severe. Do you get to kind of choose within that area of criminal offences or does it kind of just be a little bit lucky bag kind of thing? Um, I think it's definitely more like a mixed bag, but I'm really lucky where I am now. I have an extremely supportive boss. So I know if I said to my boss, I don't feel comfortable doing this, that it wouldn't be pressed on me or forced on me. I know that I'm lucky in that in that aspect of things though, because um, I know it can be a pretty tumultuous industry where it's kind of like put up and shut up. Um, as for me personally, I've never rejected a case in my life unless there's been a conflict. Mm-hmm of interest um, and that would prejudice my client. That's the only time I've ever rejected a case, not because of the subject matter or the nature of it or because, you know, I got a hunch of this or that or I didn't like my client or I've never rejected a case. And the big reason is I think for me I have a big reason why I do what I do and so that kind of propels me forward and, um, yeah, it isn't – it doesn't necessarily block me from taking – or I I personally have never – had a prejudice and said I'm not going to take on your case because you know I don't feel like I want to for example absolutely and I think this is where you and I really connect with each other in a way of our passion to do the work but the complex or the um, more severe and challenging ones because it is commonly heard across whether it's a lawyer or a psychologist that sometimes sticky end is too hard basket or that um, it, it, it is mentally taxing, which it is. But often I like to then talk about, well, what is someone's drive and what is someone's passion to work in the complex ones, especially something like criminal law. This is where I was saying I think we relate because I love that kind of um, almost like a private investigator in a way to figure it out and find the answer um, and help the person in a mental health space. You said your reason why. What is your reason why for that criminal I mean, law case? For me, it's it's a kind of multi-layered question. Um, yeah. on, if I was to, like, summarise it, it's because I feel like it's a way that I can really meaningfully give back and, um, you know, and tap into my social justice, tap into my humanitarian, um, I guess, passions but to go deeper me Celine I'm of the belief that no one wakes up in the morning and decides hey I'm going to go commit a crime or hey I'm going to go and be a terrible person today or hey I'm going to go destroy someone's life today sure there is a small minority of people and I would say no no more than maybe five to ten percent that are your 
sociopaths or your psychopaths or, you know, your necromaniacs or your arsonists Mm -hmm. that that have these things that necessarily drive them to go out and commit a crime. But for the 90% or the 95%, which is the majority, there is a big reason why they do what they do. And what I see is society as a whole, the second someone is charged, the world around them condemns them, whether they're guilty or innocent. The second you're charged, you're condemned. And so to see beyond someone where they now become defined for what they've done as opposed to who they are, to see beyond their bad, to see them for who they truly are, to understand their why, what drove them to do that. Was it childhood trauma? Was it drug and alcohol abuse? Was it another trauma that they're going through in their life? To to see beyond the bad that the world defines them as, the world defines them as their charge, to see beyond that, to see them for who they are, to see the person, to understand the person, I think is actually a service. And that's a big reason why I do what I do. Um, The second reason is I firmly believe that a human being's right to fair legal representation is a basic human right. And I've not just made that up, you know, it's ingrained in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that Australia is a signatory to. It's something that we colloquially accept as a society as a basic and fundamental human right. And no matter what you've done, the same way, the same way that access to, you know, clean water, the same way that you've got access to not being um, a slave, the same way that you have access to life, liberty and security of person, those values that align in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, access to fair legal representation is right on the same level with them. So I also am in a position where I'm able to facilitate someone's basic human right and that's their access to to a fair and just legal system and a fair and just legal representation and trial if that's where we end up. So that's my why. Gosh, so eloquently said as well. I love it. I mean, I know this is what you do and what you're amazing at, but it's just it makes sense and it's it, it needs to be there. In our previous podcast, we you know, we talk about the forensic psychology space as well. But the hard part is that at the end of the day, if somebody has a criminal offense or some type of offending, um, the aim is to have a rehabilitated person and someone who could be functioning back in society and the community, which is where your role becomes so important to have legal representation and advocate for them in a court space and a justice space. And it's quite funny, while you were talking, um, I was thinking about the time I'd work in disability, forensic disability, and they were telling me the history of the secure facility. And so they used to have the secure facilities that, um, were in a particular suburb in Fairfield um, in that particular area and they were all, I mean, look, any door was, what, $10,000 and lots of money to spend. It's a very, very secure facility. When then the community found out that that was located in their area. And it's it still there. It's pardon? still there. Still there. there. And it was then um, because when I was working there, it was when it had all the wire fences, barrels over and things, and the statistics of, let's say, an escape was still quite low. They didn't necessarily change, but the protection wasn't to keep the um, prisoners in, say. It was to give peace of mind to the community around them. And I guess it's the risk that, you know, they're there in that area. 
For sure. And I mean, I think also I often find myself having to kind of remind myself in certain social environments and when I'm having conversations with people that the majority don't necessarily think um, in the way that you and I may when it comes to these things. And we probably maybe are a little more aware of these mm. things because of that. We maybe have a little, we're a little more sympathetic. Um, one thing that I'm like a huge advocate for is this whole attitude of innocent um and guilty right so in australia we have the presumption of innocence so you're innocent until you're proven guilty but what i find time and time and time and time again is the second that you are charged you are condemned by the community around you and so as much as it is trial by jury it also becomes trial by community but what's unfortunate by trial by community is that you're trying to prove the reverse. In the eyes of the world around you, you're guilty until you are proven innocent and not the other way around. And it's alienating for my clients to experience that. Um, And even when they get released out of prison and people, you know, find out that they have a criminal history, um, unfortunately the world around us isn't open or as open as we may think to rehabilitation. Um and amalgamation back into the community, which makes us see, you know, rates of recidivism going up. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's 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 sad. So, you know, if one person mm. listening to this hears this and, you know, knows someone that, you know, is facing charges or is likely to get out of prison or knows someone that, you know, has a criminal history, just give them a chance. Can you explain that in maybe simpler terms for our listeners around, like, when you say trial by community, what are you working at, I guess, not reversing, but what are you what are you working to prove to a judge in court? Well, so in, 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 in the court system, um, we have what I said is the presumption of innocence. So in Australia, um, you, if you are charged with something, you are presumed as an innocent person until you are found guilty by a jury based off of the evidence that is brought by the Crown or by the prosecutors. But what I find more often than not when I say trial by community is the second that people find out that someone is charged with something, they automatically assume, oh, well, you know, they must be guilty, they must have done it. Um, and So it becomes this, as I say, trial by community because you find that you have to prove your innocence before you even you know, hit hit any kind of stage of the legal process, even though the legal system itself assumes that you're innocent until you're proven guilty. The oh, world around you has already condemned you yeah. to be guilty unless you prove the reverse. So are you then saying, because I'm interpreting that as like, you know, um, it's almost like society has programmed people as soon as you're charged, yes, you're condemned by community, but even then my mind was going down the route of, social media that we've seen, some of those right. big ones in the media, um, the community sentiments around it. And then if there's a social bias, meaning what particular groups or communities feel then is prejudiced against the person, right? Correct. Absolutely. And then there's also trouble by media because sometimes if the media forms a particular bias um, and persists with that bias, you'll, you'll hear so many times when we're impaneling juries, so when jurors are being selected to sit on a jury, the judge will always tell them, do not look at social media, do not look at mainstream media, just like switch off your phones, don't speak to anyone around you about it because there are some cases, and I've worked on cases that have been extremely high profile. 
Um, and the media will take a stance and they will drive that stance home. Um, and, of course, people, you know, and we can see it not just with, with law, we can see it with anything. If, if you are, you know, fed a particular narrative long enough, you start to believe it. Um, and, and it's, it, you know, it's the same is true that if you have jurors, for example, or people that are sitting on a jury that are watching a media that has taken a view that this person is definitely guilty and is doing everything that they can to drive that message home, well, subconsciously or not, there's going to be that at least doubt or that little voice or that shadow in their mind saying, well, you know, did they do it? Didn't they do it? This is what the news said. It seemed pretty credible. They had all these people that came on and agreed. More, more often than not, those people that come on those news programs never even get called as witnesses because their testimony is not credible or it's not true or uh, whatever it might be. But that person's already been condemned in the eyes of the media and the world around them. Mm, such an important role that you have. And, you know, I've had an experience with someone before, um, you know, seeing them you know, they could be a hero in the day in the, di- in the eyes of the media and then villainized in a heartbeat over the criminal offence also by the media. And that will easily influence a court of law. And I'm, you're making me think, gosh, you know, lawyers and the judge and to make a finite decision on something is really challenging. Absolutely. That's why sometimes, you know, having a, so when you're charged with something, you get the choice of uh, judge alone or jury. So you can choose for a judge to hear trial alone with no jury or a jury. And it's the accused person's choice. And it's always so risky um, when either way, because, you know, you don't know if a judge has a particular bias because they're human too, or you don't know how they're going to perceive the evidence. Um, but also then you get 12 lay people who don't really understand anything about law or legalities. And at the end of the day, what they're asked to do is see if elements of legal charges can be proven based off of the evidence. So, mm-hmm. um, Which honestly is so hard to interpret. Like even as a professional myself learning the forensic overlay in psychology, it is it's it takes so much skill and adaptation and learning to understand a lot of that. And if I was just a general person who didn't have this background, I think it would be really hard to process a lot of it. I also relate that to our psychological assessments and reports and diagnoses. They can just be words when you don't necessarily understand um, what a diagnosis is for someone and how entrenched it can be in the person. Without a doubt. And, like, I, you know, I completely appreciate that. So forensic psychs play a huge role in our profession, especially when it comes to um, police submissions and sentencing because people's mental impairments or mental health issues become a really big consideration um, in terms of sentencing and they're what we refer to as mitigating factors. So they, they mitigate a sentence, they mitigate the severity of a sentence um, by virtue of how how strongly affected someone's mental health issues may be. And so, you know, those neuropsych reports and those forensic reports are so significant for someone like me when I'm trying to tell the judge or show the judge that full picture, right, that global picture of exactly who this person is beyond and we come back to exactly who this person is beyond their bad and this is who they are and this is what's happened in their life and this is what's caused it um and those reports i are so so important 
so important. Yes, which, look, you know what, I'm going to add in there, I'm not the forensic psychologist, a specialist, but clinical psychologist. However, you know, my particular work overlays with some of the forensic work um, that we do and to support the client more in the treatment process once legal processes are generally finalised. However, um, we do work closely with the forensic psychs. And this is actually one of the big questions I think is interesting for people to understand. Where would a psychologist, um, I guess, enter into your world and your work? When do you call upon it? Um, Is it a standard process in each client that you have? And if you could go into detail of that, that would be great. I mean, I definitely think it's like case by case. So I have some clients that I'm working with at the moment who are historic historic offenders. So um, whether that be um, any kind of offending, whether it be like historic sexual offending, whether it be historic drug-based offending. Um, But I have some clients who have got significant mental health issues and they've also got a significant criminal history. So those clients, when they come to me, have already got a a treatment or a clinical that they've been working with to try to work through those issues. And so as we progress through the stages, that site kind of comes along the journey with us and I'll ask that person to also prepare a report for court because they've got – the thing is, so the difference for us between a forensic psych and a clinical psych is a forensic psych will see my client once, maybe twice, ask some questions and then do a forensic psychological or psychiatric assessment based off of a very limited amount of sessions. Whereas when my clients have clinical sites, that's someone that has been seeing them regularly for a really protracted period of time. So that's someone that really understands the ins and outs of who they are, what drives them, what sets them off, what triggers them, what helps them, what their conditions are, how those conditions really affect their day-to-day life. And so a report from a clinical psychologist really is able to paint a broader and more detailed picture about the daily life and how how that is affected by virtue of the mental imp- like impairments or the mental struggles that exist versus a forensic psych who really will be able to highlight exactly and specify what um, the conditions are that exist, how they would be affected if a particular sentence is given, um, why it is likely that the person is acted out in a particular way as a result of that mental impairment or that mental health issue, um, but it's more broad, whereas a treating psychologist is a lot more specific to the person. Um, but they're both, you know. I mean, I, I, it's so interesting hearing you say that because I'll have to give you some insights in our profession, but I agree in the clinical psychologist part because a lot of my clients, if they are long-term clients, I could very much put more of an accurate formulation diagnosis forward and it is a lot more, <clears throat> excuse me, is a lot more substantiated when I could probably show treatment progress or there's a level of reduction and management of their diagnosis and symptoms where they're no longer um, affected by their mental health. And we could probably write that in a clearer report. I was going to say the thing about our profession is, which I don't know if you find this across your work, having clinical psychologists that are able to do those treatment reports, I would probably say is few and far between because they often have preference, not necessarily to step in that forensic realm. So I feel like there's a there's a few gaps at times and that's where, you know, you and I, we have to collect our good network and good people that we actually can work with. Can you find them? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
it's it's interesting because you you definitely like it's it's interesting because there's it's always so clear as to which like clinical psychs are going to be so happy to do it and they're all on board and they're like yep you know whatever you need i'm happy to do it and then you you establish pretty quickly which ones are a bit more reserved and they're like oh you know maybe you should get him you know or her independently assessed and by a forensic you know psych or yeah and see what comes back and you know if you still really need me to write a report after that then it's funny because it makes me think if i had a particular i had a particular case where um the treating the treating psych said to me oh you know it's my preference that you get a neuro to take a look and uh, I mean sorry yeah where the where the forensic yeah. psychologist do a neuropsychological report yep <laughs> you get a forensic psych to take a look my preference is if we get a forensic psych you know I'm just treating and if you need me to write a report after that you know then okay I will and I said okay sure no worries I said but if you can maybe outline just for the forensic um what you believe exists and why you believe it exists won't tender it to a court but just to outline for them no worries so they outlined it and one of the things that they stated was that there was um a a treatment treatment that was underway for um adhd and then i get the report back from the forensic and the forensic said you know i doubt that there's any existence of adhd and i believe that this person has a has a habit of catastrophizing themselves Mm -hmm. um I've obviously sh- I got permission first of all to show the treating that report and they said yeah it's fine you can show mm-hmm. um, and so then I've shown the treating that report which essentially says that everything that the treating said was not accurate, not accurate yes. and yes. so adamant that they didn't want to write a report they were like I think that's fine we can tender it yeah. to the court I don't need to write a report and I was like are we reading the same report? Because this report literally says that every single thing that you said this person has is not true and that all it is that this person has a habit of catastrophizing their environment. So I think a report from you would be good. And they were like, oh, you know, like if I have to. And I was like, yeah, I probably think you need to in this circumstance. Yeah. So on that note, um, it's really interesting because – Unfortunately, that does happen in our profession because on a previous episode with Joseph, we were talking about the importance of conducting formalised assessments. And even if you don't conduct those assessments, understanding the complexities of comorbid diagnosis. So basically, you know, often it can be someone may isolate a particular diagnosis like ADHD, but then you may not look at the overlap in a personality issue or a childhood um, trauma issue, longstanding, and all of it can be present and it's really complicated and especially with an ADHD one, you want to have your assessments and reports and findings to substantiate that rather than just have um, like a treatment report or something that you, maybe screeners, we call them psychometric screeners, and you need to have the in-depth ones because I think it helps our profession, it helps our work, but it is a really good way to understand your client better, as you're saying, it's then affecting your work as well. <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is a really big differentiating factor in terms of how severe a sentence someone gets. So for us, it is like hugely important and something that we really rely on to, to be able to give our clients the best results or the best outcomes. When you're talking about the mitigating factors and you say obviously it's a huge piece of the puzzle in getting an accurate psychological report, whether forensic or clinical, whoever is giving it to you, what kind of penalties or 
outcomes would be different because of those reports? Well, for example, if you have someone that um, has a severe addiction and a severe drug or alcohol problem um, and the reason why, you know, they engaged in this behaviour was as a result of a severely drug-induced state of psychosis, um, that they weren't consciously aware of what they were doing. And then we have the reports that back up to say, guess this person was suffering severe hallucination, sorry, um, and that they were not consciously aware at any stage of what they were doing at the time of the offending. Maybe it's not enough to satisfy a mental impairment defence because um, you cannot be in a state of drug-induced psychosis. Your psychosis can't be drug-induced in order. That's one of the lines that you need to cross for mental impairment. But it still mitigates their moral culpability because they weren't consciously aware of what they were actually doing. So it comes back to intent um, and then, you know, it raises the question of rehabilitation. So, um, you know, if this is the underlying issue, then maybe instead of giving them a longer term of imprisonment, the imprisonment term is reduced in favour of something that may be more of like a treatment factor. So a community corrections order that's made with um, a rehabilitative focus on um, counselling and drug and alcohol support and rehabilitation. So, you know, instead of it might have originally been a five-year term of imprisonment, then maybe it becomes a two-year term of imprisonment with a three-year corrections order that has got a focus on rehabilitation. So then to be able to draw on something like that in a circumstance such as that is hugely important. Um, and then other mitigating factors that we really come back to a lot of childhood, um, what we see and you would see is that someone's childhood really, really impacts and affects who they become as an adult. Um, and really we see is such an underpinning for a lot of the offending. So... Um, for example, there's a case that we often refer to called Bug Me, which comes back to moral culpability. And it says if someone grew up in an environment where um, a particular behaviour was accepted as normal, even though it is not, then someone's moral culpability in that circumstance is reduced because they grew up in an environment believing that that behaviour was acceptable. So that can be drug use, alcohol abuse, um, violence, whatever it might be, um, if they grew up in, you know, that was accepted behaviour, that then invokes what we refer to as bug me principles. In terms of mental health um, and mitigation of sentence in terms of mental health, we as lawyers refer to a case known as Verdon's and um, we will refer to what's known as Verdon limbs. Um, and the limbs essentially establish how sentence can be mitigated and in what way sentence can be mitigated where significant mental health issues exist. Um, so those, you know, just some of the small ways where we see we see the worlds inter interact. That's so interesting because, it, you know, even as we speak, I can hear this is where the legal side needs to happen in court and what you're presenting about your client. And then for me, I can hear when you're talking about even moral culpability in childhood, it's the amount of times it's always a survival state it's always whether they were groomed um, in a sexual abuse space and then they then exhibited sexualized behaviors themselves um, whether there was extreme parental neglect and stealing on crime just to eat and feed themselves it's often so much of that that is the ins and outs of the nitty-gritty that people may not necessarily know and in both of our professions I always say it is a privilege that we do get to do a deep dive 
into our clients' lives so that we can better understand them and then advocate and explain or help them treat them um, rehabilitate too. So it's really interesting hearing you talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I have a question around the high pace of your job and the context of it all. How do you manage it all in a mental health space? Do you feel like sometimes you can be a little bit more affected or overly invested or do you think you actually manage and balance it all quite well? And I'm just curious where that your own mental health comes into play to manage it all. For sure. Look, I mean, no two days are ever the same. So, and you never know what a day is going to bring. Um, I definitely think there are certain days that take a toll on your mental health more than others. And for me, um, it's not so much to do with the content and the nature of what I'm seeing anymore. Certainly when I was younger in my career, there were lots of things that I felt quite Um, triggering and I would have you know responses to but I think as I've grown and I know this may sound terrible um, but I almost have like this just shut off where I kind of just detach and I emotionally detach from my cases so um, I'm not emotionally invested I'm not emotionally involved and I'm just seeing everything objectively um, in terms of when I'm looking at gory and gruesome things or I'm you know reading statements about how someone was um, you know kidnapped and then persistently raped or if I'm looking at you know pictures of dead bodies of babies and things you know there there comes a point where you just have to emotionally detach or I probably would end up in a mental institution myself um I've actually I was actually watching um obviously I was watching one of the Netflix documentaries of uh Jeffrey Dahmer's interviews but that forensic psychologist back in the day uh looking at all that content and files and even she said not necessarily sure how she processed it in the moment at the time and I think the number one thing I would relate to as well is you know you you need to do your job and you are there to do a job and getting overly emotionally invested can then affect your ability to do that and I have a really strong belief about that as a psychologist too meaning it's it's that um, therapist stance it's the 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 role you want to be for that person too um but do you find that maybe then you either take time to process it later or it's something that when you're on your own, you work to kind of let it be passed? Is there anything like that for you? It's interesting. So, like, for me, um, I definitely think I, like, vocalise a lot with the team around me. So if I'm watching something or I'm seeing something or something is, like, really full on, I kind of speak it out and I, like, just speak it out and vocalise to to the people that I work with and I'm lucky that I come from a really supportive work environment. And for me, I feel like that helps a lot. But that's not to say that there aren't times where I do get really caught up in what I do and I do get emotionally invested. And so for me, I... I'm a huge believer in, yes, you know, detaching emotionally from what I'm seeing, but I still like to be emotionally present and empathetic and kind and loving to my clients. I like to show them that humanity. And so it's a fine line because sometimes I get really emotionally invested with my clients and I really um, I, I really feel for them on a level that sometimes almost can become personal. So, like, I know that I have maybe two or three of those clients right now um, and that's when it really becomes challenging because you you want to see, like, you one client that I can think of right now, for example, is really young, really young mm-hmm. and hit the, you know, 
the criminal justice system at the age of 14, is now 19 and has been in the cycle ever since. And so this is someone that I look like almost like a little brother like I just want to protect them I just want to bring them in I just want to shelter them I just kind of want to grab them and shake them and be like wake up like you're destroying your life and so it's cases like that for example where I'm probably more emotionally involved than I would ordinarily be Mm -hmm. um but it's something that sways from the norm it's given it's given his age and his impressionability and um just the terrible cycle that he's now finding himself in and um cases like that I definitely find myself more emotionally invested but for the most part I keep it loving and empathetic and kind but I also keep it professional and there's that line um and I in terms of the really gory and detailed stuff that is sometimes really triggering um a I just detach I have almost like a switch and it's gonna sound really silly a switch Mm -hmm. in my brain that I can flick off mm-hmm. and I just flick it off and it just becomes like okay there's nothing there's no response there's no emotional trigger there's nothing um but then sometimes it's just a matter for me of just speaking it out to my colleagues and mm. um just having conversations with them about what I've seen and um yeah mm, I really like that I mean number one your support network and no we don't do any of our professions alone and as one person there's always a support network and supervision around you which is really nice that you have that and I almost hear that from you as like a self-awareness and reflection in the space of knowing that you can switch it on and off in something that you probably know is challenging to see um and it's like you're just in some ways you can cope ahead of time as well like you know what's it's not going to be pleasant and then still show the client that empathic kind of stance which is a really nice thing I also generally hear whether it's a lawyer actually or any professional stepping in a courtroom do you find that more as a more high stress or anxious nerve-wracking space or is that actually an area that you thrive in in your life so I think I'm like the exception because I know when I speak to a lot of practitioners everyone's like oh you know I get so nervous when it comes to court I'm like the reverse this is what I thrive in this is what I live for this is where I excel and this is like this is my favorite part of my job is getting up in court and speaking on behalf of my client um for me is the reason why I do what I do if that part of the job got cut out of it I would quit immediately um yes <laughs> so I I'm sorry I, I'll let you go I feel like I was clapping because I'm like we I feel like I feel exactly what you're saying because it's almost one and the same for me you're reminding me because I have a background as a, a swimmer and one of my incredible coaches along the way said to me the bigger the stage the better you perform and I'm a very similar one I love like the bigger the stage, it's almost like something I want to overcome and I want to be able to articulate or get things right. Um, and it is exciting in a way because those times and those moments, they're not replicated easily. It's and you're going to have to grab them and go with it. So I'd love to hear your experience about it all. Absolutely. So like um, I'm a big believer that nothing you don't grow out of comfortability so I'm always trying to push my boundaries and I'm always trying to challenge myself and so for me that initially looked like um 
there are obviously different kinds of court appearances that you can do. So the simplest is a mention. It's where you just kind of tell the court exactly what's going on with the matter and how it's likely to progress. So it's pretty simple. You just get up and you say, Your Honor, we're seeking a date for an adjournment or we're seeking a date for a plea or this is what's happening. And it's like the simplest kind of court appearance. That's like, eh. I was, that, that, that for me is like, whatever. Um, then the next thing that I taught myself to do, and that was like right off the bat, I started doing it pretty much as soon as I got admitted as a lawyer, um, is a plea. So it's where you essentially, um, tell the court exactly about your client, about the offending, their personal circumstances and why, um, why a court should sentence in a particular way or not sentence in a particular way. And then a judge or a magistrate will sentence them. That's a plea. Um, and so I started doing those straight off the bat. Um, pretty quickly in the magistrate's court division. Um, the next thing to teach myself, which was a little more challenging, um, was oh, in the same breath, we also do something called a sentence indication. So a sentence indication is almost like a plea, but instead of being sentenced at the end, the judge or the magistrate tells you, if you enter a plea of guilty, I indicate that I would sentence you to X. And that's generally happens if there are certain charges that are in dispute. But then the next step up for me was to start doing my own bail applications because before that I would be getting barristers to do those. Um, and so what I did was I sat and I watched a whole heap of them and I would make notes and I would write down what cases people were referencing and what people were saying. And I had like this whole document of like nearly like 10,000 words that I'd like amassed. And I was like, okay, I'm ready. Um, and then I started doing my own bail applications. I'll never forget my first one. I thought I was going to like shit my pants. Um, but, <laughs> and I was terrified. Normal, uh, normal, then, normal. I love it. Yeah. Tell us how you went. <laughs> I pushed, moved forward and, um, and I did that. And so then I thought, okay, I want to challenge myself again. So as of now, I've now started doing my count, my own county court appearances as well. So we've got magistrates, county and Supreme courts. So county courts and Supreme courts hear the more serious offenses. Um, so really anything that's not a murder, but is still extremely serious is really heard in the county court. Um, and so I've started doing everything, all my own appearances in the county court except for trials. So I'm doing pleas, sentence indications um, and appeals, county court appeals as well, all on my own, no barristers. And so those that, you know, and it's not usual for lawyers um, to, to do that. You definitely get some, and those are the ones like me who love the advocacy and thrive off the advocacy. But generally, um, practitioners reserve those kinds of appearances for barristers. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's something that I've really challenged myself to do, and it, it pushes me in all the right ways because I love the going to court and I love the speaking in court and I love the advocacy side of my job. Um, but it's not to say that it wasn't terrifying. <laughs> we got there. Always on an underlying level of terror that you overcame and you know what my mom was sort of thinking that is so much better for a client to have a lawyer like you because you know the ins and outs you're doing all the work with them and then you're not having a barrister just kind of come in and do the the performance let's say you can do that as well and I always find although it feels like there's that terrifying feeling happening if you can overcome it it's such a challenge and you learn so much from it because you then want to articulate your words or your argument, your knowledge, what you know better. Um, it's incredible to get it right too. And then each time you get better and better and better. And obviously speaking to you, 
I can hear that in the skill that you have. And I, I love that because I think it would be, I'd love to see you in action at some point. <laughs> I'll send you a link to the next time I'm in our court. <laughs> Beautiful. Oh, I love these chats. It's been such an interesting conversation. And I know it might be the everyday work that you do and it's second nature, but I think it'd be so insightful for our listeners. At the end of each conversation, I have a few ethos life questions that you can either answer in a one word or a one sentence response. You can try to make it succinct. I won't hold it against you if it's a longer answer as well. (laughs) Are you ready for them? I'm ready. Number one, what protective factors, better known as resilience, keep you doing your job? Uh, My why. What is one mental health practice that you do to keep yourself grounded in court? Going and watching a nice piece of theatre. Ah, do you do that before or? Um, It depends. If I'm feeling like really anxious or overwhelmed or I know I've got a big week coming, I'll make sure I book in like a theatre show or something at the end of the week because I know that's something that is a big form of escapism for me um, as well as something that brings me joy and is something that grounds me back into um, happiness and joy and just like helps like alleviate um, the tension that's in me. For sure. Totally. I'd agree with you. I, I love that. They're absolutely amazing. And it is a bit of a feel-good kind of thing to do. What is the most challenging mental health issue that you've faced while being a criminal defence lawyer? I would say PTSD um, for myself. I think that there's sometimes lots of things that I see that are triggering from my own personal life um, and just brings up, yeah, past traumas. So, yeah, PTSD for sure. Wow. Yep, yep. That, and that makes sense because, you know, the PTSD side also then I would imagine managing that slippery slope of vicarious trauma for things that you see because you're very much in the thick of it all. Yeah, absolutely. And so it becomes you need to kind of, For me now, I'm consciously aware when I find something triggering and so then I just take a moment to breathe and ground myself and stop myself from like reliving that cycle. Um, Otherwise, you know, you're on the risk of just like spiralling. You know, um, it's not actually a part of the question, but the thing is whether it's a mental health issue or not, when you see things and when you're viewing that kind of content, the mind and the brain has a funny way of processing things because whether it's, let's say, it's not even attached to PTSD or anxiety, if some information in your day remains um, unprocessed, it can be processed in the dream space. And I would even vouch myself, I'm a very, very heavy sleeper um, and I may have just had a stock standard general normal day, but if something is it's still in my mind that I'm trying to figure out, I can just get a strange kind of resemblance of it in my dreams and it does tend to happen whether you're conscious of it or not. Well, it's interesting that you said not too long ago I Um, a case come into me during the day of an aggravated home invasion Um, and I must have just I it didn't affect me at all I just looked at it and I was like okay well here we go I read the details and I was like all right I'm moving forward but that night my husband was downstairs and he had the tv on full blast and he was watching tv and I fell asleep upstairs and there was a particular part in the movie or the show whatever he was watching where um there's like a war scene and there was like lots of screaming and fighting and like noises of guns and things and I woke up in an actual panic attack thinking that my house was getting broken into and that that's what was happening and it's because 
yeah, living in the back of my mind. And I had like a full blown panic attack where I was like hyperventilating. And my husband came upstairs and he was like, why are you screaming? Like what's happening? And I was like, someone is breaking into the house. And he was like, no one is breaking into the house. And I was like, someone is breaking into the house. And I was like convinced someone was breaking into the house. And he's like, I'm telling you, there is nobody breaking into the house. But yeah, it's interesting that you say that because obviously consciously it was still there, even though I was kind of just like, oh, okay, whatever. And I moved on with my day. Absolutely. And that's the, I mean, we talk about sleep in our work as well, but you know, the power of sleep, your brain will still process subconscious things that are unresolved. And if, if that just is there and you took that information in and you didn't even um, realize that it needs to be processed, which is how powerful we are as humans, but your responses are absolutely phenomenal. I love them. I think it helps in the work that you do and I think it you know it only makes you a better criminal criminal defense lawyer and I can see that so thank you so much for your time today I absolutely loved our conversation (laughs) thanks for having me I really appreciate it if you'd like to access our team of psychologists for professional mental health support please visit www.ethospsychology.com Thank you for listening and subscribe to Life in the Cyclone on your favorite podcast listing platform to better understand psychology today.